Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. The whole idea was I just wanted to win that contest. So it took me five weeks. I won the $100 contest, and then I won four weeks in a row, and then I was addicted. Then it was like heroin, and I literally left the business and just started writing jokes and turning you know, three minutes into five minutes, five minutes into 20 minutes, and then I took over Haggerty's Comedy Club and became the house MC and the booker, and then everybody that would call in to book their comics, I'd go, okay, I'll book your comic, but if you want me to book them, you gotta help me get booked, and before I knew it, within a year, I was on the road and never turned back. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Uh, my guest today uh, needs an introduction. Uh, <laughs> the reason why he's here is because I feel like I don't have enough reality uh, covered in the show, and um, I wanted him specifically because, first of all, he's an amazing man. I, I love him as a person. He's got a great energy. But he also started off as a young stand-up comedian and worked his way up through the ranks as a comedian, uh, working with such comedians as Larry the Cable Guy, Bobby Slayton, Jackie Mason, the, the late Richard Jenny and Mitch Hedberg, uh, Bob Goldthwaite, and the late Bill Hicks. He's worked with a lot of uh, dead people, basically. <laughs> and... Uh, and then he moved on to work on a tour that was basically Sam Kinison's Outlaws of Comedy. Basically, the theme here is he's a guy who's worked with dead people. <laughs> um, and he worked in these live gigs that were like literally huge gigs all over the country. And um, he was doing really, really well in that business. But then he decided, hey, you know, I'm going to go in and do something else. You know, I'm going to produce content for these entertainment venues which he did, and he did very successfully. And then he decided, you know what, let me try to create unscripted television. And that he did with a first show called Secret Admirer, which was uh, signed by Gay Rosenthal Productions and developed through NBC. 
And then he created and produced an unscripted uh, dramatic comedy series, a, a dramedy entitled Face of the Family, which was on Lifetime uh, in uh, 2006. And then the next year he founded his own company, Aploff Entertainment. And that year he created the Motherload and executive produced the musical reality comedy competition show Don't Forget the Lyrics, which... Uh, Basically, it was a huge hit on Fox and then got sold in syndication in like, I think, like close to 100 or 95 percent of the country. And literally the guy now is fucking models on piles of cash. Uh, But uh, he's an amazing man. He just was recently commissioned by Fremantle to executive produce the UK smash hit Take Me Out for Fox, which George Lopez hosts. And we're going to talk a lot about the business, his trajectory, and success. Please welcome my guest today, very excited, Jeff Aploff. Thank you very much, Barry. I, I'm glad I got time away from the hookers and the models <laughs> and the pile of cash to be able to talk to you for a few minutes. I am glad. Because <laughs> when people look at me, they go, man, that's a guy banging <laughs> girls on piles of cash right there. <laughs> well, uh, you know, they, they, we have something in common. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, they don't look at me that way either. But uh, anyway, uh, so I want to start at the beginning because I always like to start at the beginning. Sure. Your birth. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I want to start off on is like everybody who's doing anything in the world that they're doing for a profession, there's a, there's a, there's a week or a day or so before they come up with a brilliant idea to do what they're doing. And then all of a sudden something happens that makes them say, you know what, I, this is what I want to do. So let's start with the stand-up comedy, which I believe you started in 1990. Take me through like a month beforehand. What are you doing? What happened to make you want to do comedy? So I was building restaurants. I had built uh, Jewish gourmet delis and bagel places in Florida. I built over 30 stores. I had done some consulting gigs. I had done a lot of different stuff. My dad was in the delicatessen business. His father was in the provisions business. So that's really what it was. And my dad only wanted me to be in the deli business. That was like his dream for me to open a store and do it nice and quiet. And it was really, you know, that was his So thing. you're not a Jew is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you get the chubby Jew on the pile of cash with the beautiful girls you see where we're going right right. so so what had happened was i had always been a guy that's you know i'm me i'm the way that i am and you're the you know i joke around and i have fun so i had friends of mine that go hey we went to this open mic contest at a place called haggerty's comedy club in boca raton florida and you really you should go up and just do it you you really gotta go because you were always funny with the people always joking around and doing my thing and busting balls and just having fun and just I was always a funny guy, right? So, you know, life of the party and all that stuff. And and I had several different people say, hey, you should really try the comedy thing. So I went one night to Haggerty's and I kind of watched this open mic night and it was a bunch of different guys doing different things. And I said, okay, I'll try it. So that open mic night was a $100 grand prize. For those of you who don't know, because it's possible that you don't know what an open mic night is. Uh, uh, there are these nights in comedy clubs, but sometimes, you know, when I was doing comedy, the ground round at the time was popular and you go on a Monday night and there'd be musical acts or be comedians and there'd be a prize. Sometimes there wasn't a prize, but basically you'd have a professional host who hosted, who probably was getting paid a hundred dollars or $50 
and then all the other acts were free, so they would get the free entertainment, and then there'd be bad acts, and there'd be good acts, but it'd be a way for people to start and do things, and the comedy scene, as well as the music scene a little bit in some, some places, there are these open mic nights where people are allowed to go on and do between three and five minutes, and and build their act, and that's what you're talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about, and I got five minutes, and in fact, my first night that I ever went up, I met another guy that was there for one of his first nights, which was Mitch Hedberg, right? And all these guys, and it was Jimmy Schubert hosting, who, you know, another, another great, great comedian. Comic. So guys that are just really long-term comics and that, you know, you make these lifelong friendships with. But at the time, I knew nobody, so I went in, I watched the first week, I just wanted to see what it was. They gave a $100 grand prize. I went up, and all I did was tell jokes the very first time that I went up. I told, you told old, jokes, jo- old jokes, just joke jokes, right? Which for those of you listening, if you're uh, a comedian and you were going to go on stage and do old jokes, you'll never get anywhere in the business because the comics will basically just run you out of town. It's like you have to be in a situation where you create your own original material. Uh, in music, listen, you know, sometimes you can go on an open mic night and do one song that's an original and you can cover something and you could be considered a genius if you sing a Janis Joplin song the right way. If you go on as a comedian and you do David Tell's jokes and do them perfectly the way he did, you know, you're going to be in deep shit. Which I didn't know, okay? And so I went up. I did joke jokes the first time. The second time I went up, I did a couple of other comedians' jokes, and they took me on the side and said, hey, dude, this is not the way you do it. You have to write material if you're going to come up here. This is not the way to be. And I was like, okay, got it. So I went home, and I wrote. And I wanted to just win this 100 bucks. Took me five weeks. Now did Hedberg win or Schubert win that? Uh, that well, Schubert was the host, so oh, he, he was the host, so he couldn't okay, win. Okay, and yeah. Hedberg did not win. Got it. Um, and I don't even remember to be honest with you. A guy named David Stebbins. I don't know if you ever heard of David, but he does a bunch of AA shows and things like that in Florida. He's still in Florida. My first um, open mic yeah. night was at the Comic Strip in Fort Lauderdale. <gasps> and, Mitchell Walters and <laughs> and and the four people that were on my show and how they did it at the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale at the time they booked four comedians from New York or out of town and they would work Monday through Sunday they do about literally like 10 shows and on Monday was the open mic night and one of the acts would go on then an open mic night open mic or sometimes two another act would go on sometimes two and the act, now we're talking about every comic we're talking about has passed away. So the four comics I remember, hopefully I remember this because this was over 30 years ago. I am an old motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> it was um, Schmock and Valley, which or Valley, who was Jim Valley, who's a, an executive producer now of so many different television shows, and I work with him on the show Action for Fox with Jay Moore and uh, Schmock was the last name of his partner. They were famous for doing the Tonight Show, a bit of King Kong doing the dishes. They were a very popular comedy team. There was a guy named Paul Zimmerman from San Francisco who used to juggle with two sticks and something, uh, and he was a very interesting guy. Uh, there was Jackie the Joke Man Martling, Funny. who was famous for the Howard Stern show. And there was Mitch Walters, who was a straggly, sort of portly man with a big energy and looked like he was doing uh, horse tranquilizers or some kind of drugs. And those were the four comics on. I'll never forget... Um, Right before I went on, Mitch Walters did a joke. 
He said, you know, I'm a, kind of a big guy, get really hungry after I smoke marijuana. The other day, after I smoked a bag of wa- marijuana, I went to 7-Eleven. When I left, it was called 610. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And a few people laughed, and then he called to the back of the crowd. He said, Marling, you know, I don't know if that one has a future. Something because so so they were like they had written the joke together, they talked about it, and then I did my act and I did very well. I did an original act and I had all my swimmers because I was swimming at the uh, we at the uh, Hall of Fame pool in Fort Lauderdale with all the swimmers during the break, and it was wonderful. And they all came up to me and they said, "Where'd you come from?" and and you should keep going and doing it. So there was encouragement there, just like for you. Even though you think you know, if you're an artist out there. When you start going through what you're going through and going through the process, there's a lot of supportive people around you. The reason why they're supportive around you is because they know the chances of you making it are slim and none and slim left town. They know the chances of you getting the next level and passing them are like 100,000 to one. So their guard isn't up. They don't really care as much or whatever. But have a guy come in from out of town and do a set on their open mic night and have them get a standing ovation in the room, I can guarantee you they're going to be a little chilly. And so uh, the support for young comics is great, just like it was for me and you. So keep going with the story here. Yeah. Now. Well, no, the, the whole idea was I just wanted to win that contest. So it took me five weeks. I won the $100 contest, and then I won four weeks in a row, and then I was addicted. Then it was like heroin, and I literally left the business and just started writing jokes and turning you know three minutes into five minutes, five minutes into 20 minutes. And then I took over Haggerty's Comedy Club and became the house MC and the booker, and then everybody that would call in to book their comics i'd go okay i'll book your comic but if you want me to book them you got to help me get booked and before i knew it within a year i was on the road and never turned back i was on the road for six years after so you're blackmailing people yes i was (laughs) whatever it takes barry (laughs) but again it just shows you that this is just uh, i i i know i sound like a broken record but it's like anybody who's listening it's like listen to that story so there's a ton of open micers every week coming one guy wins the contest four times in a row. One guy takes over the club. One guy becomes the booker. It's like all the other people don't because they either didn't work hard enough at their craft, weren't figuring out how to navigate, didn't have a vision or a plan, but you had all of that. Well, I also had a lot of I had a lot of business experience in the past, and I always had major drive. And one of the things that you see, especially in road comics and the people that I worked around, and even like a Mitchell Walters, like you look at these guys and you go, they're so good. But there's a common denominator for successful comedians, and that common denominator is the biggest, best ones. Come up with a new act every six months, every year, every two years. You could look at every one of them, with the exception of Rodney, who did like the same jokes forever. All the rest of them would do that. You look at the guys that are still on the road after 25, 30 years, they're still great comics, but they're too lazy to sometimes come up with the new material. They just don't do it. Not that they're not great, but they don't have that drive. And so I was never that guy. I was always the guy that was like, I need to get, and I still feel that way today. I still feel like, like people look at me and they go, Hey, you've had a really great level of success, which I have, but it's nothing near to what the expectations I have for myself. So, you know, for me, I think that 
is a key thing in my personality that goes, it's got to be bigger, it's got to be better, it's got to be, you know, Barnum Bailey. I did a show one time where I brought in, you know, a Ferris wheel, and then all these comics would joke around with me all the time because I brought on the foot. I wanted them to just see the Ferris wheel from the highway so they could see what was going on at the comedy club so they'd come in and, you know, just craziness. No, but that's, you know, it's, it is about reinventing yourself, whatever. And some people do, you know, sometimes you can see it like when I was uh, younger, I, I loved Joe Jackson. I love the album Look Sharp. I must have played that album over and over again so many times, and it just, the beat, everything about it, just, I loved it. And then the next album that Joe Jackson came out with was like sort of a jazzy, kind of slower, kind of a whole different lane. And I personally, as a fan, I was disappointed, and I wasn't excited about it. I didn't listen to it a lot. And I didn't talk about it a lot. But now that I look back, I respect him for trying to figure out a different thing, evolve, do whatever, and he could always go back. It's similar to like Jim Carrey, all those movies, all those movies of that craziness. And then, you know, he does uh, The Truman Show or Eternal, um, I'm sorry, Eternal something of the spotless, Eternal Sunshine of the, what was it? Spotless Mind. Of the Spotless Mind. And so, yeah, so it's like for a comic, it's the same thing. And you're right. The comics, a lot of comics say to me all the time, they say to me, listen, Barry, why is it that I'm working all these C clubs and I can't get out of this, you know, this rut of these C clubs? And I always tell them it's about the content. I said, do you know, I mean, do you know any comedian in the world that's doing material like Mitch Hedberg did who is working the C clubs? It's just impossible. It's just if if you're doing the right stuff and you're having the best sets of the night every night, it's impossible. Like you said, you went into that place and you won four weeks in a row. I always say to any comic who listen, they say, what does it take to get to the next level? This is what it takes. You go to your home club, wherever you are, 10 times in a row, and 10 times in a row you go on, and the doormen, the waitresses, the barbacks, the busboys, the host, every member of the audience, the comedians that hate you. If you were to poll every one of them on an exit poll and they said you were the best comedian that night with the best performance and the best material. And if that happened 10 times in a row, you just, you know, get a helmet. It's all over. You're going to, you, you're going to get to the next level. And the people that aren't getting the next level where they're being, you know, musical artists or magicians or any kind of band or anything, it's because they're not doing that. You have to consistently, when I was doing comedy, what was so frustrating for me is because I would go on and I would have that best set of the night against guys who've been doing it 10 years. And I'd be on top of the world. And I think I'd gotten to the point. But the way comedy is, it's like when you're starting, it, it robs you of consistency. And you don't know why. There's technical things that you just can't see or figure out. And you don't have anybody like playing the tape over and over again like pitching coaches do. Look, your mechanics is here or whatever. So you go on and you kill against some of the greatest comedians in the world, and you think, man, I'm just as good as they are for five or ten minutes. <laughs> and then the next night you go on, you do the same fucking act, and it's crickets. There's like tumbleweeds coming across the stage, 
And meanwhile, a guy with a wooden leg and an eye patch is getting a standing ovation. You're like, what the, what happened? How did this happen? And so, and, and that's the way it is. But if you can have the consistency, like you had four weeks in a row, then it's over. Yeah, but the key is, and the lesson is, is what are you doing on the other 23 hours and 55 minutes of that day, right? So if you're just waiting around and going, I'm going to do that five minutes better, I'm going to, that doesn't work. Like the guys that go, I'm going to work eight hours a day, like every other job on making this the best act, I'm going to actually, what you said is very important. I didn't get good in comedy until I started taping myself. I would videotape myself every night and go, why would you say that? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you make a different face here? And I would coach myself because the truth is as much as anybody, nobody's ever going to want you to be as good as you want to be, right? And as great as you can be. And so you have to take that into your own hands. But I mean, there's a shortcut thing for people that don't have to. A guy that doesn't have to, he's got an hour act. He can go on for an hour. He's going to make good money. They're going to send him to different cities all over and different countries sometimes and to the Bahamas. And so he goes and can, and can potentially get lazy. It's the guys who don't do that and they go, you know what I'm going to do? Every single night I'm going to go up. I'm going to do a different 15 minutes. Even if it doesn't get a laugh, I'll do it in between my best stuff so I can hone it and get it better and do a different act and build a seven minutes that I could do on stage at the improv where managers will see me. They go, that's a show right there. That's a television show. That's the work you have to do. Regardless of the industry that you're in, if you're willing to do the work and not shortcut it, then you have an opportunity to be great. In any business. Yeah. It's true. So keep going here with your story. So now you're booking, you're getting booked all over the country. How do you end up with the uh, Sam Kinison Outlaws of Comedy Tour? So so what happens is I get booked um, with a guy named Lou Angel Wolf at Ron Bennington's comedy scene in, in Clearwater, Florida. And I go to the comedy scene and I'm doing my act and Ron Bennington and a guy named Ron Diaz had a radio show called The Ron and Ron Show. It was number one in Tampa. It was number one in Miami. It was a huge show. And it's why I wanted to do this particular club. So on the Thursday night, um, Bennington came in and watched the show and said, hey, you got to come in to the radio show tomorrow. I really want you to come in. And I, I don't know if you know Ronnie Bennington, but one of the funniest people I've ever met in my entire life. So brilliantly funny, and I would listen to their show. And when he asked me to come in and do the show, I was like, oh, my God, I have to do it. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And again, you know, how many people have gone on that show when he's been there and he says, I want you to come into the radio show? Chances are... 
not a lot, and surely not everybody. So again, you're doing something that created a problem, created noise, and it was like an accident on the highway. You have to slow down, you have to watch, and you want to know what's going on, and you want to be a part of it, even though it's sometimes it can be good and sometimes it can be bad. You so, never know, right? right? You never know, and you're on the road and you're doing all these things, and I really wanted to be a part of this radio show. Like, it was a big thing and I was going with that in mind and everybody knew and I also had an idea to do this disciple show which I wanted to pitch him on and you know Lou was very good friends with him and so I was like okay I'll find my way in to get to these guys he asked me in to do the show the next day that was the disciples of comedy that was the disciples of comedy which you know when Sam Kinison died that um, was the offshoot of the outlaws of comedy correct when Sam Kinison died he um, had the outlaws of comedy that he would tour with right so he would go out on tour and he had these guys that he would go with Mitchell Walters who you mentioned before was one of them Carla Bove was one of them Jimmy Schubert was one of all these guys right and when he died it was in Laughlin Nevada he died in a car crash I remember Jay Moore opened up for him at Tulane University when he was I think a teenager and I believe I could be wrong but I thought he was driving from Tulane to uh, Vegas the next few days and it happened uh, you know somewhere within a week of that time it was the last gig he did I believe I don't remember the specifics of it but I know he just came back from Hawaii he had just gotten married he had cleaned up he had done a bunch of stuff like that I never met Sam I didn't know Sam but I knew all these other guys when Sam was away in Hawaii or doing those gigs all these other guys would come to Florida and hang out and I knew them all from Haggerty's yeah and Sam was a guy that you know just a, I, I just want to break in and I'm sorry but I think it's important for a lot of when I uh, started coming to Los Angeles, I used to go to the comedy store, and I had heard through word of mouth that you have to go to the comedy store original room. Don't worry about anything that happens during the show from like 8 or 9 o'clock until midnight. Just get there at around midnight or 1130, and that's the only thing you need to go for. Because there's this guy named Sam Kinison that closes every show in the original room. And it doesn't matter if there's five people there or it's packed. You'll see all the comics running into the room to see him. And he'll be doing something that you'll be like nothing you've ever seen before in your life. And uh, again, no internet, no email, no social networking, just word of mouth. And the old school word of mouth. And I never forget when I saw him uh, the first time he got on stage and he had this thing that he did. I didn't know that it was part of his thing. The mic would, the way the Comedy Store original room works and still works to this day, it's very unorthodox for those of you who've been to comedy clubs all across the world. There's no host in the original room. There's just a guy running the light, which tells comics when to get off. They say, thank you, good night. They get their round of applause, and then they stop, and they introduce the next guy. It's called, in comedy, Tag Team. And it's very unusual uh, to have it that way, but a lot of comedy clubs did it normally to save money because a host could cost, you know, an extra $100 a night, and... As you know, if you're doing 10 shows, it's an extra 1000 You do four weeks a month, that's 4000 and it adds up. 
And so Sam had this thing. I didn't know about it. And I'd never seen anybody do this before. He walks up and the guys introduced him and the mic is in the stand. And he would take the mic, he would grab the mic stand and detach the mic and he'd be holding it by the neck. And he would do this thing where he, and that I saw for the first time where he, uh, sort of uh, jolted it up towards the ceiling and then grabbed it in the middle and then took it sideways and just threw it to the side where it bounced off the stage and into the tables and chairs. Didn't matter if there was anybody sitting there or not. <laughs> That's what he did. And I saw him do that. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, this guy's got balls. He's wearing the long coat and he's got the long hair and he's doing jokes about you know, things that I, I never heard. I was an innocent kid. I didn't know, you know, hearing about a guy talking about how he needed to satisfy his woman and start screaming about it and the, the, the screaming into the mic and everything. I was like floored. But what it showed me was is that he was worth what people talked about. And he was an incredible, incredible performer and an incredible voice of comedy that will never be duplicated. And and again, he created those holy shit moments and he went on at the end. And later on in my career, when I moved to New York and opened up a comedy club in New York, there was a young kid who was creating the same reputation there uh, at a, a place called the Comedy Cellar on McDougal Street, which was a hole-in-the-wall place that was the most respected place. It was so, in any other mind of a comedian, the comedy seller would be like a hell gig. And I don't say that because it is a hell gig, because it's not, but it is structured to where the ceilings are literally seven feet tall or six and a half feet. The stage is about two inches high. There's a piano on the stage that takes up half the stage. There's a row of tables and chairs in front of the stage and a pathway in back of that that goes to two bathrooms that are make a gas station bathroom in Martinsville, Indiana look like the Four Seasons. And it's the only bathroom in the restaurant and the comedy club, so people are walking back and front to the stage like that. It's just that kind of thing. But there was one kid who would always take that late night spot, that last spot, and comics would come in, and that kid was Dave Attell. And I'll never forget, I'd heard the word of mouth again about Dave Attell, but he was a young guy then. He was probably only doing it like, you know, two or three years, from, and, but he just was going on. That's the spot he loved to do, and he took it. And he would be bombing sometimes. I'll never forget when I walked in the first time. He had this thing where he would tell a joke and it would bomb. And I walked in right as a joke bombed. And he would take the top of the mic and grab it with his hand and turn it, imagine it narrowly. And he would say, let me turn this to funny. Oh, funny. And I'll funny. never forget the first joke I heard him do. And then we'll get back to what we're talking about. He says, he's, he says uh, me and my friend went to the Gap uh, today. Uh, he comes out of the dressing room. He's wearing overalls. He looks at me and he says, uh, Dave, what go with these? I looked at him and I said, I don't know. Uh, I'll tell you what doesn't go with those. Jobs and women. 
and the crowd just exploded and I knew right then and there why this guy was closing these shows and I'm not equating Dave Attell to Sam Kinison and he wouldn't either but the originality of Dave Attell and what he was all about has created a legacy and there isn't any comic in the business or anybody in the business that wouldn't say that Dave Attell is one of the funniest most unique people in the business same with Sam and made their mark and, and like that and again you're going into a situation where you're starting this tour based on the name of this guy that you're following who passed away who was a legendary guy and a genius how did you create this brand with these guys and did you feel that the four of you guys even as collectively as a group could carry on the Sam Kinison name, knowing what a genius and a brilliant original voice he was. Well, we figured if we had the voice of Bennington, who was the host of this show and a comedian and a club owner and really brilliantly funny, to help sell shows on the air, right? So he, we were in, I don't remember, 12, 13 markets, something like that. So if we could sell the tickets in that market, bring these guys on the air, let people see how funny they were. I don't know if you've ever seen Carla Bove, but one of the of funniest people on the planet. I mean, a guy that would tell a joke and then act it out and then just do it in a way that was so animated. You put him in a theater and he takes over the whole theater. Just brilliant. Carl was and, Sam's opening act. And best friend. And best friend. And best friend. And in fact, you know, there's other stories we there's won't get Amazing but... <laughs> story. That's another podcast. <laughs> but um, but you know you have all these great comedians. You go, could it be Sam Kinison? Probably not. But could it be a great tour that you could fill up seats and make money from and you know make a mark? Absolutely. And at the time, that was before the Kings of Comedy and before all that other stuff. And you look at it and you go, we really had a great tour with some great guys if we could get this thing on. So the whole idea was, you know, let's get to Bennington. Let's let's have Bennington see this. And eventually he did, you know, see all of that. And I ended up becoming part of the radio show. And, you know, my first day in that radio show, which I was telling you before I got, I got Don King on the phone. And I, then I started to get other people on the phone. And it was craziness. And they were just like, dude, how did you, where did you get these? And that was before cell phone you know I literally had a book where I had Don King's number and got him on the phone and Anthony Hardaway and you just you do all of these things and it got me into the radio show which got me into the concert thing and all of those things kind of happened got it and so tell me about your next move after that after this thing went down and the radio what was your next move and what did you decide that you wanted to do after that when the radio show, um, the radio show kind of imploded, uh, Ron Diaz, his wife, got AIDS. And when that happened, every day you're going into a comedy show and things were imploding. Like it was bad and sad and not fun. And it's every day you're getting in at 3.34 in the morning and things are just imploding and it just wasn't fun for me anymore. So I went to the CEO of the radio network um, and I was like, listen, I'm, I'm not really happy they were selling the network at the time um, to Pax and Communications. So we had ended up selling the, the network to Pax and Communications. And it was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. Let's do something fun. We both love sports. Let's become sports agents. So we became sports agents. And I did that for about two years and just hated it. Didn't love the business. Wasn't really the guy that wanted to take care of other people. I really wanted to do my own thing and, and figure that out. Um, and so... 
I ended up doing some technology business. I did a couple of other things for a couple of years. And then I said, okay, I'm going to get back into entertainment. And I was looking for one act that I was going to take out in a concert tour. And I found Eddie Griffin. And I picked Eddie out of everybody else because it was back in 2002. So you wanted to become a concert promoter? Or an agent? Or no, I what? just wanted to do a big tour and get back into entertainment. Okay, let's. But but how would you make money off the tour if you're not a promoter and you're not an agent? How would you make money so off the tour? I would have been. I would have been the promoter okay. and the producer Got both. It. So I would because be, the promoter has to. For those of you who don't know, the promoter has to actually guarantee money and put money up. And when you do a tour, and you're doing a multi-city tour, like you know, we did the Dane Cook story earlier. You know, Bill Blumenreich. The promoter for Dane Cook's tour, last tour that I remember, I mean, he had to put up and guarantee millions of dollars. Now, granted, Eddie Griffin wasn't doing arenas at the time, but he was, you know, he could have been doing like, uh, you know, big comedy clubs and small theaters at the time. No, actually, he was doing bigger than that. I mean, we were doing 4,000, 5,000 seat theaters. I mean, he was big what, enough. That was after the movie that he did. The... That was just before Undercover Brother. Okay. Which is why I chose him because I said, let me pick a guy that has, number one, the urban market is very, very loyal and very, very loyal to a guy like Eddie. So you go, okay, if we pick some cities like Atlanta and Washington, D.C. and all of that, I'll do the staging. I'll produce it. And where do you have the money to guarantee him all this money? Well, I had made some good money in doing technology and in doing... I I had always made money. So you just took the risk. Had you ever met Eddie Griffin before? I never met him before. Okay, so... I came to this town, living in Florida, right? I came to this town and I made a meeting with the people at Brillstein Gray and William Morris and talked them into having Eddie in the room. I walked in. I had t-shirts made. I had jackets made. I had set stuff made all on my own. They could have said no. We walked in. Eddie was in the room. We started to make our presentation and about five minutes in eddie goes whoa 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 these are my guys right here i want these guys right here right and this is what's fascinating for again (laughs) having been in comedy as long as i have the chances of a comedy artist who's peaking at the top of his game to choose a promoter that has never been in the business before and ever promoted a date before that will never happen in a million years i don't care i mean i don't care if the guy guarantees and writes a check and puts it in somebody's bank account and says i know i've never done it before do it you got to start off with like one date here and prove yourself one date there similar to like bill blumenreich who started in one thing here one thing there did some music theater productions took over a few dates and proved himself and now, you know, has done it. I'm probably has done the Rolling Stones and huge acts as well as, you know, amazing concert acts. So the fact that you convinced a guy right there and then in the room. And when, when an artist, when you're taking a meeting, this is another thing that's fascinating <laughs> for those managers and agents listening out there. When you take a meeting with an artist, one of the things that's fascinating is like no matter what you do, you go into the meeting and you say, listen, we're just going to listen. Okay, so don't commit to anything in the room. We're going to listen, and then after the meeting, we'll talk about it, and then we'll make a decision. And again, when you're a manager, an agent, and your artist sits up in, in the room and says, you know what, these are my guys, <laughs> it's like, you're like, oh my God, we're, we're, we're fucked. 
we we now we have to go with this now. I mean, because this well, guy didn't listen to me. They, they did, and I remember we went to Brillstein Gray and we set the structure of how we wanted to do it. And I'll never forget the phone call that I got. Brillstein Gray is one of the top management companies, and uh, William Morris, one of the top agents. Yeah, I got the call, and it's the it's his agent. From William Morris, Stacy Mark, Stacy Mark, yes, who, who's a, a tremendous who, agent uh, uh, there, personal appearances, and she's fantastic. I yeah. love her, and she helped me get Wayne Brady for "Don't Forget the Lyrics," and that's yeah. a whole other story. And no, um, but it's relationships, which we're going to talk about. It, it is, it is, and but I remember them calling me up on the phone and going, "So let me get this straight: you want to change the way the concert business is done in this country?" And I go, "Well." It's not that. It's that you're putting me in a situation where I can only make money on the last 10%. So, in other words, I would have to fill up this 5,000 seats 90% of the way before I ever made a penny. And, what and you, that's the way the promotions business works, and right? What I mean, you, well, not necessarily. Well, that's why I wanted to change it. <laughs> what Jeff's talking about is that agents and managers are always trying to get the best deal for their artists. And promoters traditionally, there's many kinds of promoters who work for different things. If I were a, a betting man and I would say the average amount of money that a promoter makes for a show is 15% of the gate um, after the expenses and everything like that. And the artist would make 85%, and then there'd be a guarantee. So, in other words, they might guarantee an artist 25000 which they could make back if the room is, let's say, you know, half full or whatever. And then the rest, they would split, you know, 85 15 Now, the bigger acts what you get, then they'll cut it down to 10%, the agent and manager, and then the uh, they'll do a 90-10 split. And there are situations, uh, which I know, which I have been a part of, which the promoter makes 5%. And if you're booking the Rolling Stones and you want to book the Rolling Stones, they've never not sold out. So there might be a situation where they might squeeze you down to 3%. But you're booking the Rolling Stones. It's a respect play. you got to do it. And so there's all different things like that. But what he's alluding to, Jeff, is the fact that the agency wants to guarantee that their artist gets taken care of and so what he's saying is some some people try to hold a promoter to like, hey, look, it's going to sell out. It's going to sell out. So when it sells out, we get 90, you get the last 10. So we get the first 90, you get the last 10. They try to take advantage of young promoters who don't know the ins and outs of the business and try to make that deal to where it's next to impossible to do it. So if they do anywhere under 90% of the business, the promoter loses money. Whereas in the traditional way I'm talking about, if you split the profits after the guarantee and expenses, let's say 90-10, then starting at like 60% of the audience being full, the people start making a little money here and there. So keep going. I'm which sorry. Is, which is what we did. Now, that mm -hmm. was the, basically just trying to make a structure where we, wouldn't, where we would protect ourselves. And again, Eddie Griffin, who at the time was great and hot and doing fantastic, is not the Rolling Stones. And I wasn't willing to go, hey, I'm going to put up everything and take all of the risk and potentially have none of the reward. So in any case, we did that. And during that tour, during that tour, we were here in town. We're at the Four Seasons. We were out on the patio, which Eddie loved to go to, and of course we had to treat, so it was Eddie and his entire entourage, and then we would get the bill, right? But Eddie was holding court, 
And at one of those meetings back in 2002, 2003, I met these guys at another table and I'm like, so what do you do? And one guy goes, well, I created, you know, Blind Date, the television show. And I go, oh, cool. What do you do? And the other guy goes, oh, I created Love Cruise. And I'm like, wow, so all you dating show guys travel together? No. And they're like, no, no. And I go, whoa, just the reality TV guys travel together? No. So I didn't even get their names. But on the way home, on my flight home, I was like, you know, reality television's getting pretty big right now. I've got a few ideas for reality TV. I'm going to go home and I'm going to create something. So I went home and I created two big shows and it took me two weeks and I did more than I should probably ever do. I made Bibles and all kinds of stuff, which I didn't need to do. And then I was like, let me find out. Who a Bible, by the way, is your is, is for the audience that doesn't know, is normally like a, a presentation of what the specifics of the show would be. For instance, a Bible for a scripted show or a treatment, as they call it, might be the first page might be a a synopsis of what the first episode is. The second page might be the breakdown of the characters, and the third page might be uh uh, 13 paragraphs of what the A story and the B story would be of all 13 or the next 12 episodes. A Bible in reality would just show you the trajectory of how it would be if it's a competition, how each episode would lay out. If it's not a competition, how it would go in the trajectory of the series with the characters that you might have it in or the participants. And then it would have pictures sometimes and visuals and things like that. So actually for this particular thing, the Bible is getting into specifics of cost and crew and things that you would never have to involve yourself with. And I got crazy to do that. But I created these two shows and then I was like, let me go find out who the creator is of, of Blind Date because I didn't even get the guy's name. So I did what I do and I got on the phone and I found out who the guy was and is a guy named David Garfinkel who has a company called Renegade 83. And I said, okay, I'm going to track this guy down. And I called his office and they said he'll return. They didn't return for the whole entire day. So I called his office the next day again. They said, no, you're on his call list. He'll return. He didn't return again the whole day. I was like, what the fuck, right? So the next day I waited all day long. And, you know, this guy's got a bunch of shit going on. I'm just waiting for the phone call, right? So I wait until 7 o'clock that night and I call and he answers his own phone. And he goes, this is David. And I go, how the fuck do you guys get anything done in this town? you got to be kidding me. He goes, who is this? I go, dude, are you fucking kidding me? I have called you three times. You haven't returned in three days. You've <laughs> got to be kidding me. He goes, who is this? I go, my name is Jeff. I met you over at the Four Seasons. He goes, oh, dude, you're on my call list. I go, dude. I'm not joking with you. How do you people get anything done in this town? I'm not joking with you. I mean, you got to be out of your mind. I go, I, let me just tell you how I work. I got a 24-hour rule. If I call somebody or somebody calls me, within 24 hours, I call them back because I don't know. It's business. Who knows what it is? How do you let something go for three days? Like, dude, I'm sorry, blah, 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 blah. Anyways, let's talk. We talk for 45 minutes on the phone, busting balls, joking, having fun. And finally, I say, listen, I've got a couple of shows that I created. They're not dating shows. I know that's what you do, but they're big network. He goes, I don't want to do dating stuff anymore I want to do big network stuff and I said okay I'd love to come in and pitch you and he goes great when do you want to come I said when are you open he goes tomorrow and I go tomorrow is great he goes okay how about 11 o'clock I said 11 o'clock is fantastic however I'm gonna be flying in for this meeting okay he goes flying in what are you talking about you don't live here I go I don't live there but I want to live there okay but I don't live there but I'm gonna fly in for the meeting you cannot cancel on me he goes I won't cancel I said you can't cancel because the guy who doesn't return a phone call in three days is bound to cancel on you. He goes, I promise you I won't cancel. I said, okay. And he goes, by the way, when did I meet you? And I go, it was like 
two weeks ago at the Four Seasons. He goes, oh, in New York City. And I said, no, it was in Beverly Hills. And he goes, no, it couldn't have been because I was in New York City at that time. And I go, David, we're talking for 45 minutes. I know it was you. You told me that you created Blind Date. It ended up, I flew in the next day. I meet with him. It wasn't him. It, the guy that had said that he had created Blind Date was just some guy bullshitting. It wasn't even him or Jay Renfro, the two guys. I end up pitching him two shows. He says he wants to do both. I end up making deals with those guys. And that is how I got into reality television. That's exactly how it happened. Unbelievable. <laughs> Fate is an amazing thing. Is that crazy? It's crazy, but persistence. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Persistence, that's fantastic. So take me through like your experience like in those first reality shows. What happened? What was the process like in developing and putting together? First of all, when you're a young guy and you're doing a deal, even with a show you create with a production company, basically uh, similar to Eddie Griffin, what he wanted uh, from a young promoter, you basically bent over a coffee table and you have to take whatever deal they give you. And it's not necessarily a great deal, even though you're creating your own reality show, the first deals you make. You, you do. You, it's almost like that. I'm a guy that, listen, I've done a lot of business before. So for the average person, I've never been anything else but an executive producer in this town. I know a lot of people that have been in the business for 20 years, and they're just becoming executive producers. I just didn't do it that so way. So they gave you the executive producer credit right away when they, they didn't, didn't have, have a to. choice. They didn't why, have a choice. Why they didn't call, they have a choice? Well, they called me. How we would so- you even know about the business to ask for one? Well, I studied. I studied and For those of you who and- don't know, the executive producer credit in television is the highest level credit you can have. And uh, in film, uh, the producer credit is the highest level right. credit you can have. And the executive producer credit is the second credit. And again, in television, executive producer is the top one. Co-executive producer is the second. Producer, the third. Correct. So and then, you, right. Yeah. So what had happened was, and it always comes down to, what is the level of content that you have? How great is it? How bad does the network want it? All of those things. The first thing I ever sold was in the room to Jeff Gaspin at NBC. We went in. I pitched him a show. And he was like, really like, it wasn't actually in the room. He's like, I really like this. If you would have been here last week, I would have bought this in the room. 
Uh, but let me think about it. And I think we're, we might want to do it. And within a week or so, he had called up and said that he wanted to do it. That show ended up not happening, which was Secret Admirer. But we put it into development, and I got a check, which was nice. But your first thing you ever pitched went the first to a thing, network. The first thing I ever pitched to a network went. That's and incredible. And it went at like my second or third pitch. That's so incredible. It was pretty good. It and you were pitching good. with the guys from Renegade 83? No, 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 no. That ended up, that deal fell apart. I won't even get into that deal. Oh, okay. But the deal with Renegade 83 never happened. But what did happen at Renegade 83 was David brought me in to meet a guy named Greg Goldman. And Greg Goldman. Greg was just here on this couch about uh, three days ago. I love Not Greg. on a podcast, but. Uh, I, I love Greg. And Greg is a great personal friend of mine. And he introduced amazing. me to Greg. Greg was the director of development at the time. I met Greg, and we hit it off big time. And when we have time, I'll tell you some other stories between me and Greg that are unbelievable, including how we sold lyrics and all these things. But I met Greg, and Greg and I became friends. And ultimately, Greg went to work at ABC. The first pitch Greg ever brought in to ABC when he went to work at ABC was one of my pitches. I brought him with Drew Rosenhaus, the big sports agent, of right? Course. We went in, it was craziness. And ultimately we sold Don't Forget the Lyrics together. So um, so meeting Greg was a huge thing for me because he really did help me. And in fact, I remember at ABC when he introduced me at the time it was Andrea Wong that was running the network. Of course. Okay? She's she's, an, and she's an amazing executive. And I you know I asked Greg this question. I said, tell me, I know people like you feel like there are literally less than a handful of executives who are great executives and make things happen and have a vision of the future and what it takes to put on a successful show. Who are those people that you feel? And he mentioned three people two or three people and one of them was andrea wong andrea wong is is one of the best for me it's mike darnell the former president of fox uh -huh. and now the president of warner brothers television there's really he's so he's the one who greenlit american idol he greenlit american idol although that was forced on him a little bit a little bit you know that was brought in by but he's green greenlit he so many be, shows anybody should be so glad that something's forced on him he, he's like a genius but he's a genius i mean he's literally a genius um, in any case, you know, Greg had brought me into ABC and stood up in the meeting. He had just started there and said, I want to tell you about Jeff, one of the most brilliant creators I've ever met, one of the people in this business that is absolutely going to make a mark and that really nobody really knew who I was yet at the time and just really stuck his neck out for me. So for stuff like that, you never forget and you stay loyal to those people. And so anyway. Um, That's awesome yeah, stuff. Yeah. I love this stuff. I yeah. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. 
His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I've partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session. BarryKBB.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.